Hi again, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Grumpy Old Broadcasters. I am one of the grumpy guys, Dan Scott. I'll be joined by Cobb Oxford on this episode coming up here in just a bit. But we welcome you to episode five of GOB. Hope that uh, you've enjoyed what we've put out there for you so far. I promise you, this is one that you're going to want to listen to more than once, and you're going to want to share it with your friends because we've got a very, very uh, intriguing edition of Grumpy Old Broadcasters for you here on Episode 5. I just want to tell you before we get into that, that our main sponsor here, of course, uh, is the folks at Todaro Pizza, uh, located in both Greenville and Clemson here in the upstate of South Carolina, where we are based. And even with the shutdown and business closures because of the coronavirus, you can still get Todaro Pizza either by calling ahead and picking up or in certain areas having it delivered. And uh, the best way to find out all the information is to go to the website, todaropizza.com, T-O-D-A-R-O, pizza.com, and you'll find out everything you need to know about both locations there. John and Chris are, are just waiting to continue to serve you the best pizza that you're going to find anywhere here in the upstate and beyond. I, I can promise you that. And when we get back to some semblance of normal businesses are open again and we're out doing our thing, if you're not from the Greenville or Clemson areas and you're coming into town for a game or for business, do yourself a favor, put that on your food bucket list to visit Todaro Pizza, 116 Markley Street in Greenville or on Sloan Street in downtown Clemson. All right, as mentioned, Cobb Oxford will be joining me on this edition of uh, Grumpy Old Broadcasters, Episode 5. And I have been blessed over the course of my career to do a lot of interviews with a lot of high-profile people, athletes, media people, you name it. I've been blessed to do it. I have not had as much fun on an interview or had an interview with the substance that this one has in a long time. If this is not the best one I've ever been part of, it's easily top two or three. And I'm talking about a guy by the name of Jason Whitlock, who you probably know now from co-hosting Speak for Yourself on Fox Sports 1 with Marcellus Wiley. He is a longtime newspaper journalist and is known for not holding back on his thoughts and opinions. You're going to really enjoy this interview with Jason Whitlock coming up right now. Well, our next guest on Grumpy Old Broadcasters uh, it just shows the power of uh, social media. Uh, Jason Whitlock, I think, is a very, very uh, well-known national sports guy. and He did something on Twitter the other day where he called himself grouchy. And I just happened to respond, and I said, Grouchy, how about Grumpy? You'd be perfect for this podcast, the Grumpy Old Broadcasters. And he immediately responded back, let's do it. So we welcome to Grumpy Old Broadcasters, Jason Whitlock. Jason, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, we appreciate you being here. Um, I guess the first question is, uh, and again, I think most people know if they don't, you, you uh, co-host uh, Speak for Yourself with Marcellus Wiley. How are you enjoying doing a uh, national sports show with no national sports? <laughs> uh, it's putting our creativity to a test, uh, but it's been enjoyable trying to come up with ideas and things to talk about. Thank God the, you know, the NFL 
uh, continued on with free agency, going to continue on with the draft. And so we and thank God for Tom Brady moving to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's given us plenty to talk about. And Cam Newton's Instagram feed, he's constantly putting out, updating his Instagram. So it, it, it's, you know, it's not ideal. We'd love to be right at the beginning of the NBA playoffs and, uh, you know, tracking LeBron James's quest for another NBA title, that that would be ideal, but that's not going to happen. And so, you know, they pay you well. Hopefully you have some talent and hopefully you can get, we can get through this coronavirus deal without uh, putting too many viewers or listeners to sleep. What, what's your take on, on what we've seen in this country in, in the last month with the coronavirus, obviously? Uh, I'm not sure if I have a big overall take on what we've seen from the country, just because I don't watch a lot of the news. And so it's, it's hard for me to keep pace. I, you know, for me personally, I have used this as an opportunity to, you know, address some issues and focus on myself. And so I, I'm just trying to feel like, hey, look, it's a downtime. We're going through some adversity. And smart people try to get better uh, in the midst of adversity so that when we're on the other side of it, we're actually in better shape than we were before the adversity. And so probably maybe two weeks before the coronavirus thing really took off, I had made a big commitment about, look, man, I, I'm overweight I got to address my weight problem. And so I started uh, working on my diet and exercise and just recommitting myself to my faith and, you know, a little Bible study, a little prayer. And so for me, the quarantine and look, it's been problematic. And, you know, I'd love to be working in studio. I'd love to be able to go out and socialize and go eat dinner wherever the heck I want. But for me, I've just looked at it as an opportunity to try to use a little extra time at home and focus on myself and just get better. How is uh, One Mill Whitlock going, by the way? One Mill Whitlock is going great. Today is day 44, uh, 44 consecutive days of just, well, I, the first three days I was on a 72-hour water fast, and then ever since then I've been just eating one meal a day, usually dinner, well, it's always dinner, but it just depends on what time. It sometimes early as two o'clock, sometimes it's late at seven or eight o'clock. But I think of the forty-four days, I've worked out forty-two of them. Uh, I just had a, a <laughs> the other day. I put out a tweet where I walked eight miles. I think on Saturday or Sunday, maybe it was Sunday. I walked eight miles, and I couldn't work out yesterday on Monday. Just my feet hurt too bad. Uh, <laughs> eight miles is just too much. But was back on my rowing machine this morning. Got 45 minutes in this morning and pr gonna try to get, you know, some about 30 minutes on my stairmaster this evening before I go to bed. So one mil Whitlock is chugging along pretty strong. You uh, mentioned the Tom Brady and the New England soap opera and the breakup and all that. What 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 is your take on that? And, um, I mean, he's what forty three. I mean, but I know Tampa is really excited to add. Yeah, what's interesting is just how laser focused and how committed 
Tom Brady is to making this work. He doesn't want to be embarrassed. He he wants to do what no man has done before. An all-time great quarterback switching teams at the end of his career. Of course, it didn't work out, you know, for Joe Montana. Uh, you know, Peyton Manning had to switch in Indianapolis due to injury and go to Denver, and he was lucky enough to get another Super Bowl, but that wasn't a situation where he drove the team to the Super Bowl that year. He kind of hung on for dear life and got that extra Super Bowl. Tom Brady wants to be a tremendous, I think he still thinks of himself as a Pro Bowl caliber quarterback, plans to go down to Tampa at age 42 now, 43, I think when the season starts, and wants to be a driving force and still a tremendous player. And then we just saw where Ian O'Connor of ESPN reported that, hell, maybe Brady wants to play beyond age 45 all the way up to age 47, 48. Uh, it's it's going to be one of the most fascinating stories we've ever seen in sports. Is, is Tom Brady going to go out like Muhammad Ali uh, versus Larry Holmes? Or is he going to go out like uh, George Foreman? And why am I Michael Moore? Is that who my George Foreman beat for the heavyweight title? Yes. I can't remember. Uh, but or is he going to have you know this great finish the way George Foreman did? And I guess if I had to bet, Tom Brady's starting to convince me that he's going to be effective in Tampa, and he seems just so committed and so determined that you know it's hard for me to bet against him. I think he's going to play pretty well. Why do you think he picked Tampa? I mean, it's the warm weather. There's been lots of theories, but why Tampa? It, it seems to me that a bunch of factors uh, came into play. One at the top of the list, like, man, he's going to have some weapons on, on the outside and Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. Uh, two, I think he likes Bruce Arians. I think he likes – that Bruce Arians does things differently from uh, Bill Belichick, and it's going to be a more fun atmosphere. I think he believes in Bruce Arians' mind. I think he likes the warm weather. I think he wanted to stay on the East Coast where his wife can get to New York and, and take care of her business. And, I, you know, obviously he thinks Tampa, if they can just eliminate the turnovers, uh, the Jameis Winston, you know, 30 interceptions and God knows how many fumbles. If, if Tom Brady has 12 interceptions next year and throws 28 touchdown passes, that's just going to be a big improvement for Tampa Bay. And if, you know, Tom feels like if he can get into the playoffs, he's got a shot. Uh, you know, so I, I think those are all the factors just, and, and, you know, wanting to, establish something outside of Bill Belichick. So so do you do you really root for him to do that? Because, as you said, this can go one of two ways. I hope, personally, that this doesn't end up like Johnny Unitas with the, the Chargers and Joe Namath with the Rams. You know, th- those were sad finishes to great careers. Yeah, I, I'm rooting for Tom Brady because uh, I just think Tom Brady has represented himself so well uh, for the entirety of his career, you know, deflate gate, I don't really care about. Uh, Tom Brady, to me, has competed and has the respect of everybody he's competed against. Uh, you know, just seems like a good guy. Is he perfect? No, no one is. But I'm certainly rooting for him. 
if you know, if I had to choose who I'd rather have a beer with, Tom Brady or Bill Belichick, it's going to be Brady uh, by a mile. And it's not that I look; I got a lot of respect for uh, Bill Belichick as well. But to 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 root for a guy that's trying to do something we've just never seen at his age, play at a high level, leave that cocoon after twenty years. Yeah, how can you not root for Tom Brady? It would be a tremendous story. And I, I don't even think – if Tom Brady has success, I don't think it does anything to diminish Bill Belichick. It only enhances Tom Brady. Jason Whitlock from Fox Sports joining us here on this episode of Grumpy Old Broadcasters. Uh, Jason, uh, Cobb and I are both former newspaper guys, uh, and former ink-stained wretches, and, of course, you got your start basically in the newspaper business. Both of us are glad to be out of it, uh, but we miss the newspaper business the way it used to be. Do you miss the way newspaper used to be, or, or are you just glad that you're out of it and, and could care less? No, I, I truly miss the newspaper industry. Writing is my first love. Uh, I didn't get to accomplish all my goals as a journalist. Uh, you know, people have ridiculed me for this, but I always wanted to win a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, my role model in the newspaper business was Mike Royko, uh, from Chicago. He wasn't a sports columnist, but he, he was just a general columnist that won a Pulitzer Prize, dominated the city, the city of Chicago for 30 some odd years. That's the way I always saw my career. I was lucky enough to work in Kansas city for 16 straight years lucky enough to win the Scripps Howard Award for National Commentary, first sports writer to ever win that award. And a lot of people consider that award like a predictor of who might win a Pulitzer Prize in the future. And so that that's – but I truly did want to win a Pulitzer Prize because Mike Royko did. And I wanted to be in newspapers my entire career and just be the voice of a city – for my entire career, and I thought Kansas City was going to be that place, but the newspaper business just fell apart as a business model. Uh, you know, the leadership I think in the newspaper industry very poor uh, to react to the changes in the media landscape. Just too too concerned with things that had nothing to do with sound business, and so it, it's been devastating. I think to the country and to our democracy and to, to our republic what's happened to the newspaper industry because newspapers had been the first line of journalism and had been the leaders in journalism. And now we're just not television is leading, uh, the America's journalistic media outlets around by the nose and tell television is just a bad form of journalism. And so I think it's undermined our democracy and, and, you know, to see newspapers fall into the clickbait internet mentality and the whole sensationalizing and not ever, rarely ever putting controversy or touchy subjects in proper context or just doing stories that bring us all together. That's just not done anymore. And so it, it's, it's sad. I'm concerned about the health of our republic slash democracy w without a strong newspaper industry. And yeah, if I had the solution, I'd offer it up during this podcast. I, I, I don't have the solution. I just, I just have the sadness of, you know, 
we're just a less reflective and more reactionary, sensationalized country, and that's just not healthy. Before Cobb asks a question, you know, you're talking to a preacher's son here. I'm about ready to pass the plate around after that, man. Take, take up a collection. <laughs> that, that, that is spot on. I love you know, it. I considered, I mean, honest to goodness, I considered being a journalist uh, the most patriotic thing I could do. I wasn't going to join the military like a lot of members of my family. Uh, but, but I also considered journalism akin to religion because – I believe religion, Christianity, is just following the truth, uh, and the truth will set you free. And so as a journalist, that's what I thought it was our job, to just follow the truth wherever it leads, and the truth will set you free. And so, again, I look at the fall of journalism, the lack of truth in journalism. I, I just look at it as a reflection of a society that's just become more and more secular, more and more distant from God. And so I just, the more you get away from the truth, the more unhealthy and more toxic your society becomes. And, and so I just always saw journalism and Christianity and faith working hand in hand. And so that, that again is why, you know, I just felt like being a print journalist was my life's mission my contribution to American uh, democracy, uh, and and I saw it as an extension of you know the faith that that I have in God and and just the things that were implanted in me at you know the church I grew up in, my grandmother, and just a, you know a great representation of the working class and being a voice uh, for you know <clears throat> people without a voice. And I, that sounds like a lot coming from a sports writer and a sports columnist, but the people that read my column, I think kind of understood that I tried to make my columns about more than just sports and try to look at sports as a way to tell the whole story about our society. And so, uh, you know, I'm going on and on and on, but you, you brought up a subject I'm passionate about. Uh, there's really no place now for storytellers. And then, in my opinion, you know, the basics of journalism that we were all taught, the inverted pyramid, that's kind of gone away. I mean, the, the people that are remaining, it's all about gotcha. It's all about gotcha. It's not about who, what, when, where, why, and how. Um, well, facts are irrelevant at this point. And <laughs> the yeah. facts are just very optional at this point. And it's, it's all about personal biases and, and it's, it's like I had to write about Jeff George the NFL quarterback number one pick in the 1990 draft a guy that I grew up with as a kid played high school football with dear friend of mine and so when I would write about Jeff I would be very crystal clear to let the readers know like hey man this guy's a friend of mine we grew up together I'm a little biased here take what I say with a grain of salt but here's what I think and that kind of transparency and honesty where now people don't even they, – they're very just dishonest about their bias and everything has an agenda to it. And, you know, again, facts are optional, if not irrelevant. And, and it seems to me like everything is done to be divisive 
and to convince people that, you know, we, we don't have common ground. And a lot of this, I can't blame the individual journalists. I, I blame, again, when the economics of print journalism fell apart, and, and so and, and now we're beholden to outside, in my view, foreign influence that has come into our country from China, Russia, wherever, people that want us to be divided, people that want us to be uh, have an unstable uh, democracy and just uh, full of at each other's throats. I, I, I think I look at a lot of the journalism that's getting done and I just say, well, who's paying for it? Uh, you know, <laughs> people that really have a passion and commitment for America clearly aren't paying for it. People that want to see us divided seem to be paying for it, and they're getting exactly what they paid for, stories that promote us across racial, economic lines, political lines, to be at each other's throats and look at each other as, you know, like each of us is the enemy rather than each of us are Americans that, you know, want the, what's best for this country. And, and I, I'm sorry, Cobb, go ahead. Pass that plate again. Pass it again, absolutely. Uh, you know, your your style, in, in, in keeping with this, this current line of uh, conversation here on Grumpy Old Broadcasters, and we're, we're with Jason Whitlock from Fox Sports, your style has been one where you've never been shy about sharing your opinion. And, and I get the idea that a lot of people – want to put you in a box, but you, you seem to be one of those people that just tells the truth, don't care if you're black, don't care if you're white, whatever, and let the chips fall where they may. Do you get a, a feeling that there there's a certain segment of society that, that wants to put you in a box and, and then they're, they're disappointed and almost shocked when they can't do that? Yeah, I think, you know, not to make too much of myself, but I, I, I'm just the objective journalist, people that want to just kind of stick to the facts, people that believe in the truth, people that think uh, the objective facts actually will bring us together. That style of journalism just isn't popular anymore. It's like, again, my role model was Mike Royko, and he was down the middle. Half the time when I read his columns, I thought he was crazy. Half the time I thought, man, this is the smartest guy on the planet. But, But I wasn't reading Mike Royko's columns to, to agree with. I was reading just, I wanted his take. I wanted, he presented his takes in an interesting way. I wanted my thoughts challenged. And yeah, sometimes I wanted him to say what I believe, but, but again, I don't think Mike Royko in this modern setup we have, if he could even exist because Everything's about choosing a side and sticking to your narrative and whatever your ideology is and interpreting everything through your particular narrative or agenda. Uh, and so, again, I, I, I just keep going back. I'm really concerned about where we are in this country and just the, the media is so important. And, yes, do people try to put me and others in a box? Do they not want me to be successful and inspire other people the way Mike Royko inspired me of going, hey, I'm going to do it this way? Do they want you? Do they want to? And, and you know, I'm going to step out here and just be a little bit more honest and transparent. Not trying to be offensive. Anybody's listening and thinking I'm just trying to troll. But, but I, I look at a lot of alleged journalists 
who have chosen to turn their whole life over to Twitter. And Twitter is something that rewards you for being racially divisive. And so you'll take someone like a Jamel Hill, who had a pretty good career she had built at ESPN. She got baited by Twitter into being racially polarizing and just uh, seeing everything through the lens of America's evil, white people are evil, and just let me play the race card constantly. It'll make you popular over Twitter. It doesn't make you a very sound, objective, or compelling journalist or media personality. It will get you a million Twitter followers, but it won't help you build a TV show. It won't help you reach a mass audience. It won't help you be a, 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 a more fair journalist. I, I've just seen way too much of that, and I, I cite her as an example, not to beat her up, but it's just the easiest example I can think of because I've seen evidence of this across the board from, uh, you know, let's take – Bill Simmons is my favorite columnist, sports columnist. I, I felt like the the Bill, the irreverent, no holds barred, you know, just tell things from his perspective columnist that he, when he came onto the scene that he was, I, I, Twitter kind of took him apart and, and made him far more PC than what the guy was that I fell in love with as a com. And then eventually he just got out of the writing game altogether. And now he just interviews people on podcasts and I'm not criticizing him for that. It was a sound business decision, but it also I think was built on the fact of like, well, you really can't be honest as a writer. And I really can't tell, say what I really think can't have the same sense of humor that I had on my way up. So just let me get out of the writing business altogether just do these podcast interviews, stay in my little safe zone, never tell people what I really think because I want to protect my Twitter following. <clears throat> and so it's just, it's harder to stay down the middle, be objective, try to be fair to people, try not to see the worst in people. It's harder to do that because our whole industry went so crazy with this Twitter and social media thing. And, oh, my God, do you have a half million Twitter followers? If you don't, you're really not an influencer. And blah. And it's how they've rigged the system to move media people to an agenda rather than an agenda of just following the truth wherever it, wherever it leads. You can't be popular over social media if you just follow the truth. You gotta follow an agenda. It's 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 a sad time we're living in. Uh, you know, I just hope we survive it. So, so having said all of that about about yourself and, and the way you approach it, how do you stay employed in, in this type of media well, situation? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna say this. Luckily, you know, I've. I've got easy to identify talent. And and so again if if it was less obvious that I was talented, I think I would be run out of this business. Uh but you know, I was blessed with a gift for gab and I like to show up and work hard. I I I could probably count on one hand uh the number of days I've missed from work in my 
I graduated college and it was well, been 30 years now in 30 years. Yeah. I, I can count on one hand how many times I've missed work, but, but I, I have some unique skills that are hard to replace. I have original ideas and original way of looking at the sports world that others can't duplicate. And so I have a unique and rare skill that allows me to be employed. And, you know, just quite frankly, what I've figured out is like, I fit over at Fox where people kind of laugh when you say this, but Fox Sports just has less of an agenda. You can be Shannon Sharp and be woke on Fox Sports, or you can be Jason Whitlock and try to play it down the middle and just be more of an objective journalist. You, 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 You can be anything you want at Fox Sports as long as it's authentic to you. And so that's where I've been able to survive is because I'm at a place that truly does value diversity and authenticity and and doesn't put some, well, you got to fit in this box or that box or you can't work here. And, and, and I, I want to be fair because it sounds like I'm taking a shot at ESPN. I think that, you know, since John Skipper – uh, has left ESPN. I think ESPN's moving back that direction as well. You know, I don't know if they'll ever get where Fox is. I don't know if they can ever get there that fast because it, they're such a behemoth of a company and some of the politics are, are so deeply ingrained into ESPN's culture. But, but you know, when Deadspin was in its heyday and it was bullying all the ESPN executives, uh, it, it made being objective and fair and and it made it very difficult at ESPN and it, and it just hasn't been that difficult at Fox and so I remain employed because again <laughs> I have a talent and because you know Fox has a different ethos than some other places in sports media you you had a run at ESPN, and, and um, if what I read is, is accurate, and I believe it is, you got fired after criticizing a couple of people there when you moved your column over at the time to AOL Sports. And, and I've and you know I'm I'm not uh, the, the smartest guy in the world, but I, I have sat and 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 wondered certain things about ESPN before. You know they hire a Jason Whitlock to to do things and say things, and then when he does it, they get upset. I go back to uh, NFL. Uh, uh, game day when they hired Rush Limbaugh, knowing who Rush Limbaugh was, and then when Rush Limbaugh was Rush Limbaugh, they acted as if they were surprised and, and fired him. Not that I necessarily agree with what he said, but they knew who he was when they brought him on board. They, they seem to be so much more reactionary over there, going the way that the whichever way the wind blows, uh, which I think kind of speaks to what you were talking about. Yeah, I think sometimes when you're the worldwide leader, it, it's it's just harder because there's more attention on you, more spotlight. The the repercussions of your mistakes seem so much grander and so much more influential, and so you tend to overreact. You you tend to uh, try to make everybody happy when you're on top. And so I, I'll defend ESPN in that regard uh, until you've been way out in front the way they have and have that kind of attention and spotlight, have advertisers react to you the way that they do. It, it makes you more sensitive. 
your criticism is accurate. I just wanted to add that bit of context uh, around it that ESPN, and again, when you go back to the Rush Limbaugh thing, I thought, I don't think Rush Limbaugh was a victim there in this sense that he didn't at that time, he wasn't in the right setting and didn't have enough credibility in the football world to go at Donovan McNabb the way that he did. Is he, does he have a right to have that opinion? Absolutely. Go express it on the Rush Limbaugh show. But when you express it on the set with Tom Jackson and Chris Berman, and now they have to react to it as well, and other football people who who don't run in that lane that Russ runs in. And so it, it's not unlike, I don't know if you guys, how much time you spend watching Speak for Yourself, but it's like when I was doing the show with Colin Cowherd, there were certain topics I didn't address as enthusiastically or as with as much depth when I'm doing a show with with Colin Cowherd. I couldn't we couldn't just talk about Colin Kaepernick in all the detail that we do now because I'm working with Marcellus Wiley and a few other people who are very comfortable talking about those issues. It was un- it would be unfair for me to have tried to have all those conversations with Colin Cowherd. He's not as comfortable. It's not his area of passion. And so I had to do a different kind of show with Colin Cowherd. And that's what I'm saying about Rush Limbaugh as it relates to the Donovan McNabb deal. You're on set with Chris Berman, Tom Jackson, and I can't remember who else, some other football people. Chris Mortensen. Chris Mortensen or whatever. And so you you go down that racial lane there, they're not prepared to talk about it. And so it's all unfair to them. And now they're going to step on landmines and bombshells, and it's like, holy cow. And so – I'm going to defend ESPN on that one. As it relates to the first time I got fired at ESPN, I'm going to defend ESPN even on that one, on the first one. The second one was a load of bullshit, and it was a whole it was a political takedown of me. But the first one was a calculated move by me. It was all about ESPN. When I was writing for ESPN Page Two, they weren't properly paying me. And we had a dispute about it. And they thought I was bluffing. And so I took those pot shots at uh, Scoop Jackson and and Mike Lupica intentionally, knowing it was going to force their hands to fire me and knowing that them firing me was going to enhance my brand. as Whitlock's too outspoken for ESPN. And so it was going to make my bounce over to AL Sports even more popular and make, and build my brand. And so I don't even blame for the first one. They, they had every right. I criticized people that worked there blindsided them. They fired me. I wanted to be fired at that time. I was moving over to something with more money. And, and so I, I just, just because again, I like to follow the truth wherever it leads. I don't want anything misrepresented <laughs> uh, as it relates to me. First time ESPN, I'm glad they fired me. It was good that they fired me. The second time, you know, in 2015, I got caught up in them being, you know, cowards for 
Deadspin and, you know, Skipper and, and the whole little political group over there that wants everything. If you're not uh, worshiping Bernie Sanders and and whoever else was popular, or Colin Cowder, you, you couldn't work at ESPN at that time in 2015, and you sh- certainly couldn't run the undefeated. And so they ran me out of there and fired me. And, it you know, actually it turned out it was a great blessing, and it moved me in the direction I, I had been reluctant to go to because the whole writing thing had just kind of dried up financially, and, and people just aren't comfortable with the kind of truth uh, that that I like to write, and so it was time for me to move full time into television, and they gave me the kick in the pants to do it. The virus has obviously shut us down. We're hopeful, we prayerfully, hopefully, getting through this, and sometime soon we'll return to sports. But what it has done is right now on the board is set up a September, October, November of sports that. We've never seen um, with the Kentucky Derby, the Masters, two other golf majors moving to the fall. Um, it's really going to be a crowded, uh, crowded fall. We get through there. Yeah, I'm actually. If we can get through there, it'll be the greatest fall we've ever had, and we'll have too much to talk about. Which you could never have too much to talk about and watch. And so, uh, you're right. Uh, you know, we're set up for a big rebounds sports-wise if we just get through this. And, you know, I, by getting through this, I, I think it means – because, again, at the end of the day, I'm a sports fan. And being a sports fan, to me, uh, when you have my background in Kansas City for so many years, that means tailgating before the game and going into a packed stadium uh, for kickoff. And so I, I'm hoping when we get to the fall – we can get back to communally watching sports and big pack stadiums and big pack sports bars and uh, man caves that are, you know, filled with friends and good food and uh, some beer or whatever. And so I- I'm hoping that, you know, getting back to the other side of this means that we can get back to some normalcy and uh, spend time with each other watching sports and, uh, you know, so that's what I'm hoping the fall is all about. Uh, you know, maybe we'll have a vaccine and we'll feel safe by then. Uh, but at the very least, you know, worst case scenario in my mind, uh, maybe the stadiums won't be as full, but as long as we have sports to watch on TV, I'm good with that. I think that's probably a great pl- – oh, go ahead, Cobb. Nobody knows where we're going, but – they're, they're, the discussions have started as far as starting to develop plans. Um, baseball's talking about starting playing all the games in Arizona. Uh, the NFL is going to go ahead with the draft, even though it's going to be virtual, and there are people worried that there might be some hacking going on there. Uh, I mean, we're at least talking about restarting. And um, I, I just what do you think of some of the stuff you've heard as far as Getting, getting back going with sports. Um. Yeah, I, I think that people are starting to, to and, and look, I think we've always known about the importance of sports in American society. I, I talk about it all the time. Sports has been a leader. It, it's been one of the most critical 
uh, influences of American culture over the last hundred years, maybe the last 120 years. Uh, and, and particularly, you know, I'm African American for, for a lot of our success and progress in this country, I can directly point to sports as being instrumental in that from Jesse Owens at the 1936 Olympics to Joe Lewis and the Max Schmeling fights in 1936 and 1938, obviously the Muhammad Ali, the Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. And, and so sports are a critical piece of the American psyche and a critical piece of American culture. And, and, and I think one of the things that, I'm hoping it's going to become crystal clear uh, at the end of this is just the importance of football. And that's the other reason why I love being at Fox Sports. And Fox Sports is a football network. Fox Sports, the whole brand was created uh, for the NFL and for, you know, Rupert Murdoch buying part of the NFL TV package 20 some odd years ago. Uh, and so I think. <laughs> Particularly in the collar, we haven't talked about this yet on the show, but but you know, in my view, there's an attack on football. The 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 media, the the, the woke part of the media, the left far left part of the media thinks football is the worst thing in the world. And oh my God, the American society would be so much better if we just get rid of football. Well, what's about to become crystal clear, particularly at the college level, if there's no football, all these other sports that everybody loves. They're going to disappear. The, the the softball teams, the volleyball teams, the soccer teams, the swimming teams, the wrestling teams, the baseball teams. Football pays the freight for all these other sports that everybody thinks is great, and football is the worst thing in the world, and we just got to get rid of it. Yeah, there's a lot of AD I, in the country sweating right now. There really are. Oh, my God, yes. And, and every athlete in any of these other sports – needs to be sweating and making damn sure we have a football season because that's who pays the bills. And and so I, I'm hoping, that that's the other thing that I'm hoping the corona deal is that we move past this open hostility we seem to have towards football. And, and you know, it just drives me crazy when and, – and look, I like the NBA. I mean, they, you know, as a kid – Maybe my first love. The Pacers certainly my favorite team of all time. But this whole thing of like the NBA is great and everything the NBA stands for is great and oh my God, they're just so much better than everything else and football's terrible. That's just got to stop. And it's silly, it's stupid, it's an agenda, it's untrue. And if you go look, and this is why I think this Corona thing is is so important, is football the way we play football, not that soccer football, but football, the way we play, it's the most unique thing we have here in America. Everybody plays basketball now. Everybody plays baseball now. Everybody plays soccer all over the world, and the players come from all. American football dominated almost exclusively by Americans. And it is the, it is the premier cultural force in America, the number one show on five different TV networks. We need to be taking pride in that rather than trying to destroy it. Uh, and I'm hoping that when we survive this Corona thing, people have a much more healthy 
respect, appreciation uh, for football. That does not mean overlooking football's flaws. That does not mean, you know, not having a discussion on concussions and safety issues or whatever. But, but look, all great things, generally speaking, come with great risk. And I didn't sign up to play football as a little kid thinking there was no risk to the game. People got injured. People got people get hurt. I, I, I get it. And at the prices these guys are getting paid now in the NFL, the risks are damn near are, are, are worth it. And so let's quit trying to demonize football and acting like, oh, my God, we're just exploiting these guys. and They're getting hit and everybody's getting Alzheimer's. My grandmother had Alzheimer's. She never played football. Uh, I think they said Tom Dempsey, the kicker who, who just passed away with coronavirus, God rest his soul. But they said he had dementia and Alzheimer's. I don't remember Tom Dempsey getting a lot of hits during the NFL during the during his NFL career. So anyway, I I just hope there's more respect for football and appreciation for football when this Corona thing's over. Jason, one final question, and, and man, we really appreciate your time. Didn't mean to keep you this long, but I, I work with Division One college athletes uh, on a daily basis when, when when something's actually going on, and, and I worry about the the youth today, the young athlete today, and their lack of not just appreciation, but their lack of knowledge of the history of the sport they're playing or of sports in general. And I'll give you an example. A few years ago, uh, we were on a, a baseball trip, and I was on the bus, and we were doing a trivia game, and, and one of the questions I asked, the answer was Mickey Mantle. And, and one, of the, one of the baseball players, Division One college baseball player, said, who's Mickey Mantle? And 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 I and I worry because you mentioned him. I worry too that there's a a large number of athletes out there who either say who's Jackie Robinson or don't fully understand exactly what Jackie Robinson did. How do you feel about today's collegiate athlete and, and their appreciation of the history of the sport they're playing? Well, first and foremost, I think this problem has been going on for far longer than just today's athletes. And I think one of the biggest problems we have on these colleges and universities, on these campuses, is that athletes somehow are in this special category of human beings that can't be educated on the endeavor that they're most passionate about, athletics. If you're a music student at Furman University or Ball State University and you're studying music and art and blah, 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 you can actually learn about and be taught the history of the endeavor you're most passionate about. There is a way to teach athletes about American history, global history, world history, by teaching them through athletics, the study of athletics, the study of football, basketball, soccer, blah, blah, blah. And so they would, because again, I run into too many athletes, and it doesn't matter their age. It, they can be as old as 60 years old. They don't understand the business of football. If you go look at, like, to me, my problem where Colin Kaepernick, falls apart and all the people that the football players that glommed onto him and think of him as some role model and followed his lead. 
I don't think they understand the business of football and why they're able to make millions of dollars playing the game of football. No one ever educated them. If they were, if Colin Kaepernick were a freshman in college and was taught like, hey, Pete Rossell and Steve Zabel in the 1960s, 70s started uh, through a, uh, NFL films, started promoting and marketing the NFL as this patriotic event. And they did certain things to attach themes of football to themes of war. And look, people can sit there, oh, that's immoral, and they shouldn't have done it. It was unethical. But they did it. And the the whole patriotism and the whole national, this was all part of a business strategy to elevate football and make it the number one sport in America. It's how football overtook baseball. They convinced the consumer that one of the most American things you could do is sit down on a Sunday and watch a football game or go to a, uh, a foot or go to a stadium and watch a football game. And there's going to be these flyovers and there's going to be this national anthem. And there's going to be all these themes that we attach football to Americana and patriotism. If someone teaches football players this, that that's how the NFL went from being a job where Lynn Dawson and Otis Taylor uh, had to work jobs during the offseason to where now in 2020 guys can sign $100 million contracts. It was because football was attached to patriotism and this was part of our business strategy. And Colin Kaepernick taking the knee is undercutting the very business strategy that made all you guys rich. If people understood that, they would be like, hey, Cap, Cap, we get it. You're upset with the police. We're going to go down to the police headquarters, and we're going to protest there. We're going to take our complaints down to City Hall and the people that actually run the police. We're not going to do it here on this football field because our business, our pocketbooks are attached to this, and this would be economic suicide for all of us involved. We're all getting rich here and taking care of our families. We're all making enough money to support whatever political protest we want, whatever social justice we want. We're making enough money here to support that. Let's don't mess that up. But because athletes aren't educated on their actual business, they don't know. And so they're all, <laughs> of course, Cap has the right to take a knee. And it's a great thing and blah, blah, blah. It's stupid. It, it's economic suicide. It doesn't serve any purpose. Cap started a conversation about the national anthem and taking a knee. He didn't start a conversation about police brutality. If he wanted a conversation about police brutality, he should have been smart enough to know, I'm going to take my protest to police headquarters. Or the city hall. That's the people that boss the police. But anyway, so I, I've given you athletes need to be educated on athletics. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're a musician, you can go to schools and study music. If you're an athlete, you should be able to go to school and be taught something about the business that you want to get into. And that's even for the athletes that will never be professional athletes. If you're an agent 
or if you're some kind of business manager for an athlete, or, or if you're going to be on sports TV like Jason Whitlock, who was a mediocre player at Ball State, you need to be educated on the history of athletics so you can actually have an informed, educated opinion about it. This is why Jason Whitlock is uh, still uh, churning him out today at the top of his game on Speak for Yourself on Fox Sports. Jason, thank you so much for your time. We really thank appreciate you, it. That was excellent. Yep. Very, very excellent. Thank you. Oh, I heard something just now that I don't believe that I have ever heard before as we transition segments. Cobb Oxford said that we actually had a guest who talked for most of the 49 minutes we had him on and did not say anything that he disagreed with. You, you may be the grumpiest of the grumpy old broadcasters, and, and you were just smiling ear to ear. That was an amazing. Uh, that was an amazing 49 minutes. I mean, I you know I've seen him on TV. Uh, of course, he appears on Fox News and Fox Sports every once in a while, drop in segments to comment on sports issues. Um, obviously, what you see is what you get. I mean, he. Uh, He's a straight shooter now. He's he's <laughs> you you know where he stands. There was no beating beating around the proverbial bush. I think he tore the bush down. And I think uh, the the thing that you and I both latched onto the most was his analysis of the demise of the newspaper industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I wanted to get to it, but you know he just. He, but, you know, a lot of people point to the creation of USA Today, where you know, people who are not in the industry, when USA Today came on, everything, it, it, they called it uh, McDaily, or I, there used to be, a, there was a nickname. In other words, it was, it was quick, hitting, there was, there was very few long and winding storytelling analysis. It was... It was almost trying to put TV on newsprint, on newsprint. and uh, it, that started the change in newspapers because some newspapers started to try and and do that style, and uh, uh, so I, that's what one of the road markers I point to as far as the real change in the newspaper business. Uh, you know, you used to could sit down with your Sunday paper and be like. No matter what town you're in, it'd be six, eight inches thick. I know when I was in the business, we took turns doing Sunday, long and winding Sunday features. We would find a topic and we'd spend, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks working on the story. And uh, you don't, you don't have that anymore because you don't have the newsprint space. Uh, we're not even printing not if there's any sports now, but when there are sports, we're not even printing the night scores or results from night games. In we're getting them two days later. I mean, it's it's a waste of uh, newsprint and ink, in my opinion. But uh, so apparently, somebody thinks it's effective. Well, as you and I both know. Um, USA Today is a Gannett property, and, and I actually worked for Gannett back in the early 90s and worked out of the plant where USA Today 
what was uh, was printed uh, there on what they called the Isle of Newharth, where Al Newharth built right. uh, built uh, Florida today and then USA today in Gannett. And, and Gannett has, in my opinion, Gannett has been the chief culprit in running the newspaper industry because they are more concerned about the pockets of their investors than they are the the uh, product that they put out. And you very rarely see anything of any kind of, of, of real controversy or real investigation in a Gannett paper anymore because they're afraid of being sued. Their, their lawyers will put the kibosh on anything that is, is, is remotely controversial most of the time. And, and because of their, their uh, beholding to their stockholders, we have seen, you and I have a large number of friends who were unceremoniously dumped by that corporation, and it's gone on all across the country, not just here in the upstate of South Carolina. It hasn't been just Gannett. I mean, people that uh, gave their lives to the newspaper business, it just kind of it ran out of gas, and um, they they just couldn't. And then you had, which I thought was the, one of the dumbest ideas of all time, which was the merging of the copy desks in from one, in one city to to make up newspapers in five or six different cities. You you didn't have any kind of local touch on the newspaper because the person putting the paper together, if I'm putting the paper together in Greensboro, North Carolina, I got no idea where Anderson, South Carolina is. I've probably never even been to Anderson, South Carolina. And here I am putting the paper together. It just, that part made no sense at all. But that that was allegedly a cost-cutting measure. Um, but it, I, I'm like you, I, I I miss it bad. I never forget the first time going and watching the paper run on the press. We did when I was in school at Clemson. We actually printed the paper at the independent mail plant here in Anderson, and we came down on Thursday night and picked the papers up and load the van and. Um, that just that smell and that whirl of the print of the printer. And, uh, it was just an amazing, amazing thing. And just you're hooked once you, well, the first time you see your name come off the press on a byline, I mean, you're, you're done. You're, that's yep. it. That's the moment, you know? And, uh, but, you know, I made a lot of great friends and, uh, you know, the, I mean, newspapers made up a majority of the coverage of events, and they don't. That doesn't happen anymore. They, just, they don't even cover. I don't even know if they cover basketball anymore because of the night games. I mean, paper goes to press at seven o'clock. How much chance have you got to get a nine o'clock basketball game in the paper? Zero. So, uh, but yeah, it was. Uh, but when I when I entered the newspaper business in '82, Dan with the Seneca Journal, twice a week newspaper, covered everything from cops, courts, sewer commissions, city councils. Um, people were predicting the death of the newspaper industry then, and uh, especially for you because you actually saw your job advertised in a trade magazine while you were still working. <laughs> six months in, and I knew this gentleman. I knew the guy that ran the paper for years. He hired me right out of school uh, and worked for him six months. And I'm reading, you know, like every dedicated journalist did at that time. You read editor and publisher every week looking for the next job. 
and you see your job in print. And uh, so I, uh, I immediately, uh, one, of the, one time in my life that I, I got my dander up and I went in and I closed his door and I said, what is this? And he said, well, your production's not. I said, well, I'm producing this. And I've come to find out at that time, the way he measured production was we were, we actually worked on manual typewriters. Mm-hmm. Well, the way he measured production was if your name was at the top of the page, when you typed it, if you retyped a press release, if you didn't put your name on it and you get credit for it. So I found he literally took that paper and weighed how much paper you'd written that week. And that, that was your production. So I'm telling you, then on, we didn't have a problem until, and then, I, again, I've told people this before. I interviewed four times at the Anderson Independent Mail before they finally hired me. And all of those interviews came when I was at the Seneca Journal. Yeah. And um, finally, the fourth interview, I walked into the managing editor's office, and he looked at me. We didn't talk. He just looked at me and goes, I'm going to hire you because I'm tired of you coming back. I'm, I'm tired of looking at you. You know, I'm tired of you continually applying for jobs and, you know, you, you've obviously proven that you're not going to give up, so you're hired. So, you know, you just – and I loved it. I, I worked for some great people in Anderson, and I love the high school stuff, too. That's what I really miss. I mean, they don't even cover high schools anymore. And it's a shame because that was – that was I got to know some of those coaches, and they're some of my best friends, and it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, you just uh, – you felt like you were really impacting the community, you know, working, working the high school beat. And, uh, and I worked both sides of the river, over northeast Georgia, over here. And uh, it, it was, I um, met a lot of really cool people. So, but it's, it's all changed. I mean, uh, I don't know if I can even cover college sports anymore. It's, it's again, it's gotcha journalism. It's instant. Like Jason was talking about the, Twitter. I mean, Twitter's. I, I I look at it because sometimes I get news from it, but it just makes me so angry to read it. And it's just, it's just there's really a, an underbelly of society yeah. is on Twitter. And and, and and I follow Jason Whitlock on Twitter. Uh, and and so, so for those of you who are thinking, well, he's hypocritical because he he bashed Twitter, but yet he uses it. But if you read his timeline, he basically uses Twitter to get across the same point that he got across with us on this podcast. So it's, it's not hypocritical by any stretch of the imagination. You know, if, if we were going to continue to talk about the newspaper industry, we, we would never, this would be the never ending podcast. I think we're going to tell me, you tell me about your start. I mean, you, I'm certain you feel the same way I do. I, mean, I started, oh, I started at my hometown radio station in December of 1985. And I worked there for four years. And uh, when I, when I left, the minimum wage was $3.50 an hour. The editor of our hometown newspaper, this is Williamson, West Virginia, uh, in early 1990 offered me the princely sum of $6.60 an hour to come and be the sports editor of the newspaper. And, and I, I had no... Pro- $240 a week? Yeah, no, no professional... Uh, you know, writing experience, but I, I had been doing news and sports on the air for four years, broadcasting games for four years, and and obviously I had some writing talent. So I went over there. In, in the year that I worked with Wally Warden, 
our editor, and, and really was less than a year. I think after nine months, he had he had, had some much publicized battles with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it came back, and, and he died while I was there. But in, in the in the nine months or so that I worked with him, he taught me more about the newspaper business, about how to be a journalist like Jason Whitlock was talking about, than anybody that I ever worked for in, in the next 10 years that I was in newspaper exclusively. And I'll never forget it. We would be having these discussions in the, in the, uh, in the newsroom, and it, it might be about a column, an opinion column I was writing. And if he saw something he didn't like, he would challenge it, and he would say, that's not going in my paper. And I would say, but Wally, that's my opinion. And he would look at me, and he would say, Daniel, that, and that's like your parents. You know, that's when you know you're in trouble, when they use your, your full name. He'd, he, he'd say, Daniel... This ain't a democracy, and uh, you know I miss that. I I, I miss that time. I miss that uh, that uh, almost an innocence. And and again, this was 1990, so we we were. It's a twice a week paper. I learned how to work because I did it every. Yes, week. absolutely. I mean, I, the only thing I didn't get to do was ever learn how to run the press, and I really wanted to learn how to run the press in the back, but. Uh, by the time, by the end of my stay there, I knew I'd probably kind of developed myself pretty good when I was, there was a local radio guy who was on top of news every day. And then, of course, there was daily papers at offices. And I was beating, I beat them on two or three stories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, if you can do that on a twice weekly paper, you're like, okay, I might can survive this. But yeah, I know we'll forget Mr. Gallimore. He was community journalism through and through, and he would tell me one of his standard lines was, go get me a picture of a little kid and a dog, and I'll sell 25 papers. Yep. People, even today, people still like to see their name in print. People still like to see their picture, but what are you going to do? And I think that's why, as we get ready to wrap it up, you're seeing a trend of weekly newspapers that are starting – to make money again, you're you're seeing you're 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 seeing radio stations that have recommitted themselves to serving their communities that are doing well while the big major corporations are struggling because you have people who have the guts enough to go back and do community radio or community newspaper the way it used to be done. It's not being done on a wide scale, but those who do it are finding out that there's money to be made, and more than that there's a flag that they can fly as being part of a community and being part of something larger than themselves. So exactly. Exactly. I think we've done all the damage we can do for one episode. That was a lot of fun. I, uh, I, um, you know, it's rare, you know, I knew about him, knew he was, but it's rare when you get to talk to somebody like that, that they actually, they they came through crystal clear big time. That's going to include. Well, th thanks for being there. That's going to do it for this. What was that? I look forward to our next uh, Hollywood Squares meeting whenever that's going to be. Well, it, it'll be soon. I, I promise you. It'll be soon. That'll take care of this episode of uh, Grumpy Old Broadcasters. Do us a favor. First of all, remember Todaro Pizza, our main sponsor uh, here in the upstate of South Carolina. They are still open in Greenville for uh, delivery. And for pickup, TodaroPizza.com is the website. And then please subscribe, 
rate and share this podcast so we can help it grow. And uh, maybe all of us will have another full-time line of work in the not-too-distant future. Cobb, enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. Thanks. All right. We will talk to you again next time on the next edition of Grumpy Old Broadcasters.